I'd like you to turn your Bibles this afternoon, congregation, to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, page 154, if you're using the Adoration Bibles, 154. You'll recall from last Sunday how in connection with Lord's Day 5, the Lord Jesus was pictured in that ram that was caught in the thicket. The Lord provided a ram to be offered up as a substitute in Isaac's place. And this afternoon, we're going to see the Lord Jesus pictured in the person of Moses in connection with Lord's Day 6. Before we begin reading from Numbers 14, we do well to note the immediate context in which the events described are taking place. In chapter 13, we know that spies were sent out to scout out the promised land of Canaan. And when they returned, however, there was a majority report and a minority report. The majority said, the people who dwell in the land are stronger than we. We cannot overtake them. But the minority report, you may know, said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And now the question, of course, is which report will the people of Israel believe? We begin our reading at verse 1 of chapter 14 and read through verse 20. This is God's holy word. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey." Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people and your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people." For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them, and a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. But now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that He swore to give them, that He has killed them in the wilderness. And now please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger 
abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation. Please, pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. There ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us this afternoon. Let's turn also in the second place to Lord's Day 6 of our catechism, page 206 in the Forms and Prayers books, page 874 in the back of the song books, 874 in the back of the song books, 206 in the Forms and Prayers books. Lord's Day 6, read the questions and answers responsively. Question 16, why must the mediator be true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for its sin, but a sinner could never pay for others. Question 17, why must he also be true God? so that by the power of his divinity he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Question 18. Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. Finally, question 19, how do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. This the Church of Christ does confess and believe throughout the world. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Days 5 and 6 in many ways go hand in hand. In fact, a number of commentaries simply take these two Lord's Days together, for it's not hard to see how the, the logic of Lord's Day 6 is clearly grounded in the logic of Lord's Day 5. In Lord's Day 5, we learned that God's justice must be satisfied and that the claims of His justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. For the prophet Ezekiel has said that the soul who sins shall die, and the apostle Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And the problem that we face is that far from being able to pay this debt ourselves, we actually increase our debt every single day. Not a day goes by in which we do not sin against God's supreme majesty. Not a day goes by in which we do not sin against His grace and provoke Him to His face as we sing in Psalm 51. And so what we need is a mediator. We need a mediator who's willing to to stand in the breach, to go between us and the wrath of God. And here in Lord's Day 6, we learn about the kind of mediator that we need. We see that he needs to be 
true and righteous man, and that he also needs to be true God. He must be true and righteous man on account of the fact that that man has sinned, and so man must pay for his sin. But he must also be true God on account of the fact that no mere man can bear the weight of God's wrath against sin or restore us to righteousness and life. And thankfully, our catechism doesn't leave us hanging. We don't have to wonder for too long about who in the world this mediator might be because the question is asked in question 18, who is he? Who then is this mediator? Who is this mediator who meets all these qualifications that God says have to be just in place for his wrath and justice to be satisfied? And and of course, the answer is given, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus meets all these qualifications. The Lord Jesus, who, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. According to question answer 19, this is what the Holy Spirit was getting at from Genesis 3.15 onward. Long before the Lord Jesus came into the world, there were numerous signposts along the way, signposts and stories that, that served to point God's people forward to the one true mediator who was to come. You may have noticed that the passage that we considered last Sunday from Genesis 22 is one of the texts that's, that's cited below answer 19. And this afternoon we have yet another signpost along the way, a glorious foreshadowing of the great mediator between God and man. We see what the, what the mediator does for us. We see that Jesus is the one who, who stands in the breach between God and us, and that's what the Spirit is showing us here in Numbers chapter 14. The Spirit of Christ is once again painting a, a shadowy picture of Christ as Moses mediates on Israel's behalf. And this, you may know, is not the first time. This is not the first time that Moses has, has had to do this, as he had had to rescue the people of Israel from the wrath of God. He had to do the same thing at the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. And the psalm that we just sang summarizes the incident quite well. In Psalm 106, verses 19 to 23, we read that Israel made a golden calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, God said He would destroy them. Had not Moses, His chosen one, stood in the breach before them to turn away His wrath from destroying them? And this is what Moses does here as well. He, he stands in the breach between God and rebellious Israel. He does so as, as a picture of the greater mediator to come. And so, when we look at Moses, we need to see the Lord Jesus. In verses 13 to 16, we need to see our own mediator's righteous passion for God's glory. In verses 17 and 19, we need to see our own mediator's reconciling plea, appealing to God's grace. And in verse 20, we need to see how the Lord responds. We know that the story begins with Israel, and, and insofar as Israel is also a picture, we could say that the story actually begins with us. The story begins with you and me, with Christ's rebellious people. The song of the confession that, that Israel sang for generations from, from Psalm 106 is, 
is everybody as much our song as it was there. In evil we have gone astray, and sinful is our race, rebelliously our fathers walked, forgetful of God's grace. And so in the first place, we're confronted once again with our need of a mediator. As we work our way through the first part of this passage, it's as though the, the Spirit of Christ is, is holding up a mirror before our eyes. For how often haven't we been just like Israel? How often haven't we also forgotten God's grace and, and assumed that God is not really going to be faithful to His Word? How often don't we in our own sin also grumble against Him and, and accuse Him? Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness? If you back up to chapter 13, verse 23, you'll see at the trustworthiness of God's Word that the land was a good land had been proven by the cluster of grapes that the spies had had brought back to Israel. Those grapes should have encouraged Israel to say, let us go, let us take possession of the land, let us take possession of God's promise. If God is with us, who can be against us? But instead, the people of Israel gave in to despair. And more than that, they accused God of bringing them out of Egypt in order that they might fall by the sword. They doubted God's promises. Despite everything God had done from them, from, from hearing their groanings in Exodus 2, to bringing them through the waters of the Red Sea, to giving them bread from heaven and water from a rock, in the face of all that God has done for them, they, they disbelieve His purposes. And this leads them to the audacious suggestion that perhaps they should choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. But isn't this also so very much like us? How often don't we default to the same way of thinking and imagine that God must be against us or, or holding out on us? How often don't we also begin to wonder, does, does God really care? Is God really working all things together for my good? It, it sure doesn't seem like it right now. So perhaps I should just go back, back to the world back to my former sins, back to this thing or, or that thing, and find comfort there. And we soon forget the question that the Apostle Paul would have us always to have on our minds, the question that Paul asks in Romans 6.21. Paul says, when you were slaves to sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. But then he, he asks the question, but, but what fruit were you getting at that time? from the things of which you are now ashamed. The end of those things is death, don't you know? But the people of Israel honestly think that it'd be better to go back to Egypt. They doubted God's gracious promises. They disbelieved His good purposes, and so much so, they thought they'd be better off enslaved. The suggestion so horrifies Moses and Aaron in verse 5 that they fall on their faces before the whole assembly of Israel, and Joshua and Caleb likewise, shocked and horrified, tear their clothes and, and urge them to believe in God and, and to see this land with mighty enemies through the lens of faith. 
They say the land which we have passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into the land and give it to us, this land that flows with with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is, is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all their pleading and preaching falls on deaf ears and hard hearts. Verse 10, then all the congregation said, let's stone them with stones. And then what happened, boys and girls, what happened when Israel said, let's stone them with stones? What happened was that God came down to the assembly. The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And and what did God say? And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. In his righteous anger, God threatens to destroy them, for it is not a light thing. It's not a small thing or an insignificant thing to to doubt God's word. It's not a light thing to doubt God's promises or to disbelieve his purposes. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden, and it cost them everything. It's so serious to doubt God's promises and purposes because to do so is to make God into something that He isn't. To doubt God's promises, as Satan would have us to do, is to say that God is not so much a loving Father as, as He is a manipulative ogre in the sky. And that's what makes sin so ugly. It's an attack. It's an horrific assault on God's goodness, on who God is. And in His justice, God cannot just allow that to go unpunished. This was God's indictment against Israel. How long will this people reject me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? And this was God's judgment. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And this congregation is the judgment that you and I likewise deserve. We too deserve God's wrath. We deserve God to simply wash His hands with us and be done with us. For in our sin and rebellion, we too have rejected Him. And what we deserve is for God to reject us in turn. And that's what God was of a mind to do in Numbers 14. God was of a mind to reject Israel, to to destroy Israel, and to wash His hands of Israel forever. But Israel had a mediator. Israel had a mediator in whom the Spirit of the Lord Jesus was dwelling, and this mediator interceded on their behalf. Just as Moses had had done before, so too now once again. Moses stands between the breach, between God, the wrath of God, and, and rebellious Israel, and he pleads with God to forgive, to to pardon their iniquities. And in so doing, we have a marvelous Old Testament picture of what the Lord Jesus has done and what He continues to do for us. Jesus 
stands in the breach for us. And as Moses does so, we see something of Christ's righteous passion and something of His reconciling plea. But notice how Israel's mediator begins before Moses appeals to God's grace, before he appeals to God's mercy. We first see His righteous passion. He appeals in the first place to God's glory. He first appeals to the glory and and honor of God's name among the nations. And and like the Lord Jesus, he does so to his own hurt. What had God said to Moses at the end of verse 12? God said to Moses, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and and mightier than they. And Moses at that moment had the opportunity to to say to God, go ahead. I'd be honored if you would simply start all over with me. But Moses loved the people of Israel, and Moses pleads for the very ones who, in verse 10, were ready to stone him. What a marvelous picture of the mediator to come. What a wonderful foreshadowing of of him who would love those who despised him and rejected him and hid their faces from him, as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. Moses stands in the breach between the wrath of God and his rebellious people. He is more concerned with God's glory than he is with his own glory. And this is the first thing that he appeals to, to the glory and honor of God's holy name. In verses 13 to 16, Moses is essentially saying, but Lord, if you do this, if, if you destroy Israel and if you wash your hands clean of Israel, what will the nations think about you? The surrounding nations will hear of this, and and word will surely get back to Egypt, and and the Egyptians will say, well, I guess Yahweh is not really so powerful after all. And the nations will likewise say, yeah, the God of Israel must have killed them in the wilderness because He wasn't able to bring them into the land that He swore to them. In summary, Moses is saying, God, You are glorious. You deserve all glory. I know that. You know that. But I want the nations to know that. I want the nations to know that you're a God who is indeed willing and able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think or imagine. I want the nations to know that that you're the one true God and that all their gods are false gods. But if you destroy Israel they'll think it's because you are too weak to bless Israel. And this is a wise route for Moses to take because the Bible tells us that God is indeed very concerned about the glory of His name. One pastor notes that the Westminster Catechism begins with that question, what is man's chief end? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, man's chief end is also God's chief end, to bring glory to Him. God is very concerned about the glory of His name. He's chiefly concerned about that. We see that, for example, in Ezekiel 36, where God laments the fact that Israel has been dragging His name through the mud. And so, what does God say He will do? God says that He will cleanse Israel of their sins, but not for their sake, but for His own name's sake. 
He says to Ezekiel, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. To that end, God said to Ezekiel, I will take you, Israel, from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And isn't this aim of glorifying God the aim of of the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4 as they fall down before Him saying, Worthy are You, O Lord our God, to receive all glory and honor and power. Moses wisely begins with an appeal to God's glory. And wasn't this the posture and disposition of our mediator as well? Was it bringing glory to God, Christ's own righteous passion, To be sure, we know that Christ's aim was to save you and me. That's why He came, to save us from our sins. But that aim, we learn in the Gospels, was secondary to the primary aim of bringing glory to God by saving you and me. In John chapter 12, He said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And with the cross eminently before him, how did Jesus begin his high priestly prayer in John 17? In John 17, Christ mediates for his people. He mediates for His twelve disciples and then for all those in the world who will come to Him. But how does Christ begin that mediatory prayer? John says, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son so that the Son may glorify You. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished all the work that You gave me to do. Moses argued in the first place for God's glory. For how would God be glorified if He appeared incapable of keeping His own promises? Notice in the second place how Moses also argues by appealing to God's grace. In verses 17 to 19, Moses' righteous passion transitions into a reconciling plea by appealing to God's own character. Moses now appeals to God's grace and mercy. To be sure, Moses understands that God is just. Moses knows that that God's justice must be satisfied and that the claims of His justice must be paid in full. Moses understands that. But from past experience, Moses also knows that God is willing to relent from His wrath. And with a view to the cross, with his eyes fixed on that greater mediator to come, the mediator promised in Genesis 3.15, Moses knows that God is willing to delay his wrath. And that's what Moses is asking God to do here, to delay his wrath, to postpone it to that greater day, that fateful hour, when he knows the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, will finally make that ultimate atonement for sin, that sheep and goats could never make for us. 
He cries out to God, and now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please, Lord, pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Israel's mediator appeals to God's grace. And you notice that he does so in the first place by appealing to God's heart, to the fact that God himself is the one who said to Moses in the cleft of the rock, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. God, you recall, revealed himself to Moses in that way in Exodus 34, just two chapters after the golden calf incident. Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God said, I can't show you all my glory. I can only show you my back. And so God said, go to the cleft of the rock. And there Moses went to the cleft of the rock, and God passed by, and he revealed himself. Yahweh, Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Moses is saying, God, you're the one who's revealed yourself to us in this way. Moses appeals to God's heart, wherein we know that God is not a God who delights in the death of the wicked, but would rather the wicked turn from their evil way and live. Secondly, he appeals to the greatness of God's steadfast love. For Moses knows that the Lord is a promise-keeping God. He knows that, that God's love is indeed steadfast and, and everlasting. It's a love that, that binds Himself even to sinners like you and me who do not deserve it. And thirdly, at the end of, the end of verse 19, he appeals to God's own past action. He says, Father, pardon the iniquity of this people just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. In each of these reconciling pleas, you'll notice that nowhere does Moses appeal to who we are or to what we have done, but only to who God is and to what God has done. There's a lesson for us in that, and we confess our sin to the Lord, that we don't appeal to our past obedience we don't say, Lord, forgive me because I did a good thing last week or yesterday. We say, Lord, forgive me because that's who you are. Lord, forgive me because your steadfast love is great. Lord, forgive me because that's what you've always done. Because that's what you've shown yourself always willing to do. You forgave me then, forgive me now in accordance with your character. And what happened? How did the Lord respond? You find the answer in verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. We could have read on into the rest of the chapter and we could see that there are going to be consequences for Israel's sin. They aren't all going to enter the promised land. That generation is indeed going to die in the wilderness except for Caleb and Joshua. But God, for the sake of His promise, according to His character, will see to it that the next generation will indeed go into the promised land. And those, even of rebellious is, the ones who were set to stone Moses, who, who repented of their sin, no doubt were forgiven by God. 
even though they still had to endure that chastisement, not entering the promised land themselves. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. That was his answer to Moses' plea. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, we learn that Moses had prayed to the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 days and 40 nights, Moses appealed to God's glory. For 40 days and 40 nights, Moses appealed to God's grace. But Moses was but a faint picture of the greater mediator to come. For Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that this was the posture of our Savior throughout the course of His life. Hebrews 5, verse 7 says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And He was heard because of His reverence. Jesus pled for you. Hebrews 7, 25 assures us that that this is still His posture. Hebrews 7.25 says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them, since He always lives to, to mediate for them. But the reason that Jesus is indeed able to save the uttermost is because Jesus is a mediator who not only pleads for us, but He's also a mediator who bleeds for us. And on the basis of His shed blood, the Father heard the Savior say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. On the basis of, God's, of Christ's shed blood, God said to the Son, I have pardoned according to Your Word. When the Father saw the sacrifice the Son had made, He was well pleased. His justice was satisfied, and His wrath had been propitiated once and for all. And isn't this still our, our confidence today that even our own continued falls into sin? What does John say in his first epistle? But if anyone does sin, he still has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Christ continues to stand in the breach. God always is viewing us through the lens of Jesus Christ and His mediation. To this very day, Jesus says to the Father, Behold, my hands and my side. Don't remember what my people have done, but remember what I have done, how I have died in their place. Indeed, as our catechism says, the Lord Jesus was given to us for our complete deliverance in righteousness. But do notice how answer 8 says that He was given. Because that, of course, raises the question, given by who? Who gave the Lord Jesus for our complete deliverance and righteousness? And the answer the gospel gives us is that the Father Himself gave us the Lord Jesus for our complete deliverance and righteousness. The Father Himself, knowing precisely the kind of, of mediator that we needed, knowing that he, he needed to be true man and true God, the Father Himself gave us the Lord Jesus to be our mediator. 
This as the Apostle Paul the Father did in order that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And for this reason, Article 26 of the Belgian Confession asks us the questions, what more do we need? For Christ himself declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Belgian Confession asks then, why then should we ever look for another? Since it has pleased God to give us his Son as our mediator, let us not leave him for another, or rather seek without ever finding. For when God gave him to us, he knew well that we were sinners. The people of Israel were of a mind to find for themselves a new leader, a new one who would lead them. But where would that have gotten them? Back in slavery, back in bondage. Our mediator was given to us by none other than God himself. And so we see in Lord's Day 6 the implication of Christ being given as our mediator. It's not the Son needed to twist the Father's arm into loving us, nor is the case the Father needed to twist the arm of the Son into dying for us. We learn throughout the New Testament that Christ also was perfectly willing in this. The Father did not have to twist His arm because the Son loved you every bit as much as the Father loved you. He knew what standing in the breach would mean. He knew that it would mean becoming a curse for you and being forsaken by you. He knew that full well. But He loved you. To quote the Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen, it was because Christ loved us that he became our mediator. Far from deterring him, says Owen, the proposals of of taking human form and, and living a life we could never live and dying a death we could never die, the proposals only heightened his love for us and, and increased his delight in the work of salvation. Indeed, his love is like a mighty river sweeping over those proposals, saying, Behold, O Father, I have come to do your will. And so Owen concludes his thoughts on Christ as our mediator by saying, Here is love beyond our knowledge. On this side of heaven, Owen says, we cannot fully comprehend it. But in heaven, says Owen, we shall fully understand all the dimensions of it. Yet even here on this side of heaven, Owen says, if we are not too lazy or worldly, we may yet behold the glory of Christ's love by faith. And where understanding and comprehension fails, let worship and adoration take its place. See, Owen suggests that if your thoughts are filled with earthly things, if your thoughts are filled with earthly things, then a greater sense of Christ's love and its glory will not abide in you. And so he says we must not allow ourselves to be satisfied with, with only vague ideas about the love of Christ, which present nothing of its glory in our minds. But to make his love for us more clear, Owen says we must meditate upon it. We must Meditate on the fact that this love was indeed the love of, of the divine Son of God and the Son of God who became human for us. We must meditate on the fact that although we had done nothing to deserve it, He loved us anyways. 
And we must consider how to this very day, at this very moment, this Savior, this mediator bids us to to look to Him in repentance and faith as the only mediator between God and man. And if you're still living in sin and rebellion, Owen says that Christ graciously warns you, saying eternal distress lies before you. But now says Christ the mediator, look up and behold me, and you will have a glimpse of what infinite wisdom, love, and grace have purposed for you. Do not continue to hide from me, says Jesus, for I have stood in the breach, I have borne your guilt, and I have suffered your punishment, I have paid back what I did not take. And I was made a curse for you, so that you might be eternally blessed. In this vein, says Owen, the Lord Jesus speaks to all convicted sinners and invites them to come to Him. And while today is indeed still a day of grace, let us do that. Let us come to this glorious mediator in repentance and faith and live for His glory For Hebrews 9.28 says that just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He who testifies to all these things says, surely I am coming soon. And so we pray, even so, come, come. Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your grace and mercy that in order that your justice might be satisfied, you gave us a mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame in order to save us from the wrath that was to come. Lord, we confess that by nature we are a rebellious people. By nature we doubt your promises, we disbelieve your purposes. And we lament the fact, O Lord, that that old nature continues to cling to us. And that daily we have to put that nature and those thoughts to death. Lord, help us to do that very thing. Help us to put those doubts and disbelieving thoughts to death as we meditate upon the wonder of Christ's love for us. For in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, we see that you are not holding out on us. We see that your purpose is not to go against us. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, the great mediator, we see that you are for us and that there is no one who can stand against us. Lord, we pray that you would indeed lead us to love this mediator more and more. May his righteous passion for your glory be our own passion. May we too have a righteous zeal and passion to see you glorified. And may his reconciling plea be our plea as well, not only for ourselves, but also for our friends, for our family neighbors, for our co-workers and those who do not know you. Lord, we pray that by 
our witness, they too might come to know this one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has stood in the breach between us and the wrath of God. Lord, we pray in his name, and we pray for his sake. Amen.